Uh, well, today's message is, there is hope, and is there uh, an, any other greater word to describe what Easter is but hope, um, just to understand. I mean, I was thinking about the Christian life for a second, and, you know, there are probably two phrases, or, you know, like, if you think about when, if people are not really a part of the church, they'll probably come on one of two occasions, Christmas and Easter, right? You'll probably snag them on one of those two days. And I was thinking about those two holidays for a second, or at least in the, in the Christian kind of mindset and calendar. And the two phrases that stick out that are really thematic for the entire Christian life is, He is born and He is alive. Christmas is all about the, the, the coming of a Savior who was born into the world in, in a humble way and how He, uh, really through His life and ministry and the thing that He did on the earth and ultimately on the cross, made a way for humanity. And so He is born is such an important theme of the Christian message. And He is alive. And so from being born a, a man, leaving heaven, living a life, and ultimately handing over his life to death and saying, I will lay down my life as a ransom for many, we know that the second statement, he is alive, really gives meaning to everything else that preceded it. But I was thinking about those two statements, and he is born and he is alive. And much of the people that were written about in the Bible, the narrative of the Bible all these folks are actually preceding those statements. You know, the Old Testament is preceding He is born, right? And a lot of what the disciples experienced preceded that He is alive. And there's just a, a smaller portion of the gospel narratives that talk about after His resurrection. And that's our story, isn't it? that we're not recorded in Scripture and we see the things that are happening there, but we live a life and the life that is our testimony is living in the era that is beyond after the grave is empty and He is alive. And so that story is continually being written by us and that's a message of hope. That's a message of hope. And so in this message, there is hope. We're going to read two passages, John 16 and uh, one in John 20. If you can flip to John 16 first. John 16, we're going to start from verse 16, just read to 20, and in chapter 20 we'll read, uh, we'll kind of power through that, those first 18 verses. John 16. It says this, this is on Thursday now, before Friday ever set in, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the last meal with his disciples had uh, taken place and he's speaking a lot of things to his disciples to prep them of what they would experience in, this, in these next 24 hours. A little while and you will no longer behold me and again a little while and you will see me. Now some of his disciples therefore said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us a little while and you will not behold me and again a little while you will see me and because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not behold me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep 
and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. A powerful uh, preparatory message to his disciples to let them know this is what's going to happen. Get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. It's not going to be a joyful ride in the beginning. It's actually going to be filled with a lot of anguish and pain. Okay. And we know the story of Friday. We know how he was uh, denied by Peter. We know how he was delivered to Pilate, how he went before the rulers of the day, that he was chosen by the masses to be crucified, that he was humiliated, beaten, spat upon, and ultimately carrying his cross to Golgotha. He was nailed, and there he breathed his last, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." It is done. It is finished. We know that story of the Christian message, but we know that that is not a a period there. We know that the death of Jesus was not final. We know that Him being alive and Him living and ministering and speaking and preparing His disciples for ministry and ultimately giving His life and dying on a cross for our sins, that that is not final. We know that because we know the end of the story, right? But the disciples who were living with Jesus, walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus in that moment, in these days, they did not yet understand that Jesus was to rise again. And so he'd been prepping them all along. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. The the Son of Man will be delivered up. And he was talking to them all along that I am going to actually die, but I will rise again. Just as Jonah was in the belly of this great fish three days, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for this time. But the Son of Man will rise again. He was telling them this message. But somehow it didn't stick. And we've all experienced that, right? We've all slouched on the couch when our parents were, I want to say, blabbing or talking, you know? We've all allowed those messages from our friends or our colleagues or our bosses to somewhat register, but not really. And for whatever reason, whether they be because I'm preoccupied, whether it be because of denial, or for other reasons, there are times in our lives where we are repeatedly told something, but somehow it just does not register. And for these disciples, Jesus dying and being raised from the dead, somehow that did not stick. And that's an issue, isn't it? That's a problem. Because if you think about this Easter weekend, they call it, right? It's a great weekend. It really is these two pinnacle days, right? Friday that we call good and Easter that is Sunday, the resurrection, right? And uh, in these two days, we find so much hope. Here on Good Friday, we find the basis of our salvation, that an innocent man would give up and spill his blood and life for humanity. That's why we call it good. Not because it was beautiful or good for that scene or that, 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 that group of disciples on that first weekend. That was an excruciating time. If you would tell any one of those disciples on that Friday night that this day will be called good, I would assure you that they would be stomping their feet and just pumping their fist at you saying, no, it won't. It's not. 
Right? But we call it good because, again, we know what Friday accomplished for us. And then on Sunday, we have the resurrection, right? We have the, the triumph of Jesus, the stone rolled away as we sang, right? And Jesus just alive, angels heralding His life and just so much power and beauty there. But every year that Easter rolls around, I always think about Saturday. I always think about the day that sandwiches Friday and Sunday. Because to me, much of the Christian life I feel as though is lived right here. Our lives. That this is sandwiched between disaster and deliverance, if you think about it, right? And so when we experience some sort of disaster and disappointment, and before we find and experience the deliverance, there is this day that is sandwiched in the middle. The day that we don't want to live. The day that we are confused. The day that we are afraid. The day that we are saying, why me? I don't like this. This is not what I expected. Jesus is gone. I don't know why He's gone. And I'm not yet looking or knowing that there's a resurrection. And so this day, Saturday, that comes in between Friday and Sunday, to me the best description of it is scared. To be a first disciple of Jesus on that first weekend, that Friday, leading to the Sabbath the day after. And if you think about it, that Saturday in New Testament times was a Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you didn't do a lot of activity, right? And so you, you, you didn't go out and work. You didn't collect a lot of things. And you were pretty much left to yourself and your thoughts. What a day to be left to your thoughts. What a day to not busy yourself with activity and to allow the occurrences of Friday to sink in. Would the disciples be thinking about the hope of Sunday or the disappointment of Friday? I think it's actually backwards, not forward for them that day. And so the next passage we're going to read is John 20. If you can flip there. Go forward, just a couple of chapters. John 20, verse 1. This is now heralding the narrative of His resurrection, the empty grave, and how the disciples understood Sunday morning. Okay, How they interacted with it. Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday now, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. Maybe before sunrise, just at the crack of dawn, she was there. While it was, oh actually, while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb, and so she ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so now he's thinking, she's thinking it's thievery, that somebody had stolen Jesus' body. Again, not thinking of a resurrection. Peter, therefore, went forth, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. That tells me John was more fit than Peter. (laughs) A little more lean, right? I don't know, you can read into that a little bit, okay? And so they're running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Maybe it was fear. 
Uncertainty of some sort. Verse 6, Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also and he saw and believed. Now this isn't that he believed that Jesus rose again. He believed or was thinking probably something happened to the body of Jesus. Because you'll see now, verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their own homes. Imagine being on that walk. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around, and what a vision. She beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then the voice comes. Mary. That hooked her heart. She knew then and there. She turned and he said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren. And say to them, I ascend to the Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Mary, Peter, John. This first group of disciples, as they experienced this, Unfold a story that is so powerful and, I mean, in a sense, puts you right on the edge of your seat. And if you can get into the moment, if you can get into the heart and the mind of these folks that are just trying to contemplate what had just happened to them this weekend. I mean, just trying to figure it out. It's just like you come home and the door's cracked open. You're thinking, "Uh oh, what am I going to walk into? It's like you walk into this disaster and you don't know how this whirlwind came. And these disciples, that's what they're feeling for a second. It's a whirlwind. I mean, things were just taken from underneath their feet and they're thinking, what's going on? Not only did they take the life of Jesus, they desecrated his tomb. They stole his body, they're thinking. All they wanted to do was come and and put spices and embalm his body because we couldn't do it on Saturday because it was a Sabbath. So we came first thing in the morning to prepare his body for that. And they didn't even give us that honor, that privilege. How could they? And in anger, probably. Frustration pent up right to there. Mary goes back to the only people she, she knows to go to. She goes and asks the disciples, I need some help here. Can you help me? They've taken Jesus and they start running to the tomb in a, in a, in a daze, in a craze. And they're running and, they, and they, they, what, what's going on? And these disciples, Peter and John, walk back 
to their homes, head hanging low. I can imagine this is worse than a Friday. That early Sunday morning, right? That, that encounter was probably worse than a Friday because you're just rubbing salt in the wound now. This is now you're spitting on my face when I'm down. And then they walk home. And they're completely in the dark of what's going to happen. And, but just Mary is just in sadness. She just stays at the tomb and just decides to look in again and say, well, where did you guys come from? And then she meets another person. Supposing this man to be a gardener. If you've taken him anywhere, just let me know. I will go through all of the trouble and bring him back. Just tell me where. And then she realizes it's Jesus after he calls her name. And she just falls to his feet and just clings. I'm never going to let you go again. The last time you were out of my sight, something bad happened. And I'm not going to let you go again. And Jesus is like, not chiding her, but stop clinging. (laughs) Stop clinging. I have a message for you. I want you to go to those people that just hung their heads and walked home to the group of disciples that are just trying to figure out their next move, I want you to tell them that I'm alive. And then she comes running to the disciples, announcing the news, probably screaming as she's going, flailing her arms, can't get there fast enough. And then everything changes. But can you imagine the slow motion of Friday to Sunday morning? Are there ever moments in our life where we feel as though we're sandwiched between disaster and deliverance? We have the disappointment and not yet the answer, and we're just in the middle there? Experiencing something that we didn't want or expect? And we're just left to our thoughts. We feel as though we're abandoned. We're alone. We're afraid. Not knowing the answer. Feeling as though we've made some mistakes. And that's what's represented in between all of this. And Easter reminds us in such powerful ways that Saturday is a part of the process and is never final. That the good that we call good, which was actually disappointment and disaster, and going through the fear of not yet experiencing this, Easter says, There is hope. There is hope. And sometimes we just have to hang on just a little bit longer. I mean, I mean, literally, it's like our 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 gut is twisting inside because it's just it's heartbreak and heartache. We don't want to, but somehow Easter says, just hang on. Just hang on just a little bit longer. And if we do, we will experience something that is far beyond or imagination. And so I share two things today. The first point being that God's timing doesn't always make sense in the moment. Right? It doesn't always make sense. He was prepping His disciples, in a little while you're not going to see Me, and then again in a while you will see Me. But somehow, the, the timing of God, how He does things, and the process in which He leads us through... There are many times where it just doesn't make sense. It's like, why? I don't get it. What are you trying to get out of me, God? What are you trying to to have me learn here? 
Because the key here is to understand that God's view of history is not linear. Right? God doesn't see it in sequence, one moment, then leading to the next, and then leading to the next, and not knowing what the next moment is. God has a vantage point that's much larger, higher up, and He sees the first and the last in the same moment. He sees the beginning and the end, and He allows us to go through the disappointment of today because He sees the fruit of tomorrow. Right? And so His vantage point is different. It's not not linear. He's not stuck in in that line that we are. None of us knows with certainty what tomorrow holds. But God does. Because His view is different. That's why His timing doesn't make sense. Because he leads us today in light of what he knows of us tomorrow. Can I ask you a question? Has God ever disappointed you? Like if you wrestle with that for a second, like you've wanted something, and the timing wasn't right or the answer wasn't right. And for these disciples, most likely on that Saturday, early Sunday morning, they're feeling very disappointed. If you go a couple of chapters earlier in John, John 11, there is this uh, narrative of Jesus' interaction with his family. It's two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This family was close to Jesus. They lived in the, in the town of Bethany. And whenever Jesus was in Bethany, he stayed with this family. Um, they were close. That Jesus had a tremendous amount of love and affection f- f- for these folks. And there came a moment where Lazarus had fallen sick, gravely sick. And Mary and Martha, knowing who Jesus is, they do the right thing. They send out word, get Jesus here, right? And so the couriers, the messengers, just scurry along and they find Jesus. And the message is this, the one whom you love is sick. Right? Adding emphasis, saying, you know, you better get there. You love the guy. And Jesus, if you're familiar with the story, says, hey, I'm going to stick around here for a little bit. It's just better for me here. And after a couple of days pass, he says, okay, now's the time. And so then he makes his way to Bethany. And as he is going, wherever Jesus went, the word went before his feet. And so he's traveling to Bethany and word gets to that place, to Mary and Martha's house before he actually gets there. Martha hears Jesus is on the way. So she runs out, out of the gate, falls at Jesus' feet and basically starts to blame him. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, she says. And Jesus begins to proceed and talk about belief in Him and what that means in, in resurrection. And Martha runs from this encounter, goes back home because she knows her sister wants to hear this, wants to know this. And she goes and tells Mary in her ear, Jesus is here and He's looking for you. And so she just gets up in haste and runs out. And everybody that is just trying to console this family, they're startled. Why is she running out like this? Hysterical. A couple of them follow, and she comes to that place where Jesus was outside of the gate of this village. Again, does the same thing, falls at his feet, and blames him. If you had been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. Wrapped up in so much emotion, we see Jesus not chiding, not punishing them, but accepting their words, their attitude, and even their innuendo. I think Jesus 
God gives room for us to question Him. To understand that as we go through the process, we handle those encounters in various human ways. And God allows us to experience that. Because it's producing something so important in us. But John 11 tells us that God's timing is so different. Easter tells us that God's timing is different. And the second thing that I say to you today is this. God's ways surpass our ways. Our expectations, the things that we want of Him. Whether we're thinking of Lazarus and ultimately how he was raised from that grave, walking forward from that tomb, wrapped up in those linens. Or whether we think of Jesus, mistaken as a gardener, heralding news of his life. That the ways in which God does things, it goes beyond expectation. That the Bible talks in no unclear terms, from beginning to end, that God is not defined or confined to the ways of the world, that He does things that supersede and truly go beyond. Miracles followed Jesus wherever He went. God flipped the switch and turned armies into dust. He turned deaf people into hearing people, blind people into seeing people, lame people into walking people. That God's ways are beyond. And so as we end, and in a little bit, we're going to have communion on this Easter Sunday. But I'd like to leave with you a few understandings. And the first is this, that God doesn't promise us a life of no weeping. He doesn't say that in your life you will always have joy, that you will never cry, that you will never mourn, that you will never be disappointed. So He doesn't promise us a life of no weeping, but what He does promise us is that this is a part of a greater story. That there are so many emotions that are all a part of it. That it's a much bigger picture. That there are things in our life that we will experience that go beyond the moment of weeping and there will be great moments of triumph. There will be moments of great loss and moments of great gain. And all of this when held and woven together, weave and put together a great and grand picture that is our life and that is so intentional. That Friday is never left on its own. The fear of Saturday is never the final exclamation and that Sunday is around the corner. That a grave will empty, that Jesus will walk, that He will ascend. And so I leave you with the final statement that Jesus is alive. That He is alive. That He is alive. That that statement should instill hope and worth and excitement into our hearts and lives. Because if Jesus is alive, so is our hope. So is our hope. That there is hope in any and in every situation. That maybe you live in a perpetual Saturday. Or maybe you're still stuck in a Friday or early pre-dawn Sunday, your hope is still alive. Easter proclaims that with power and authority. Amen.